thank you. It's 42 years in the fellowship, 38 years pastoring. You, once you get past a certain number of years, you just stop counting. It just doesn't matter anymore. Hallelujah. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Second Chronicles. Hallelujah. Second Chronicles uh, chapter uh, it's 20. Second Chronicles 20. <clears throat> I have pastored in El Paso, Texas, uh, for one of my uh, one of my tours of duty, and something happened there that I've never seen before, never seen since. I've seen God do wonderful things, but. One night we were in revival, and um, we started the service just as any other service, started singing, and uh, we got to the point where we began to praise God, and something happened that was completely unexplainable. The praise just took off, and it had a life of its own, and we just simply just kept praising and it was like waves of praise that just swept through the congregation there was nobody on the platform trying to hype it, it, it in fact they didn't know what to do they you know well what are we supposed to do with the service it just let it roll and so it just kept going and going and going after uh, what I thought was about 20 minutes I looked at my watch it had been 45 minutes of just praise and it wasn't slowing down so we just kept praising. I mean, it was God. That's all there is to it. And maybe about 10 minutes after I looked at my watch, I got a tap on my shoulder. And my head, my head usher uh, said, uh, Pastor, you have to step outside. Uh, the, there's fire trucks outside. And, uh, and uh, they want to talk to you. And so I went out the front door, and there were, they were with their lights flashing and they're they're all suited up ready to fight a fire and they said we had three phone calls that this building was on fire flames were seen on the roof of the building and, and I said I'm not surprised ain't the kind of fire you can put out though but it was a it was a sovereign release of kingdom praise and as I said, it wasn't something that we engineered or had planned on, and uh, we never tried to duplicate it, but it set something on fire in my heart, and I'm sure in, in everyone else's heart, regarding praise. And uh, praise has always been a real, real major part of my ministry, my life, my church, and so I want to preach on praise and give you a perspective and hopefully it will uh, it'll ratchet up your praise a bit and that's something I think we need to address in all of our lives so I'm going to read Second uh, uh, Chronicles 20 and listen I, there's a bunch of Hebrew names and stuff in here and uh, I try to be accurate but the more I try the worse it gets and it just becomes this hybrid Hebrew 
Arizona, New Jersey kind of weird language. So I don't really know when it slips in, slips out. Forgive me as I butcher the Hebrew names that are in here. And uh, just uh, bear with me as we work our way through it. It happened after this, that the people of Moab, right? That's the way you're supposed to say that. Doesn't that feel silly? We all say Moab. With the people of Ammon and others with them, besides the Ammonites, <laughs> came to battle against Jehoshaphat. I'm not even going to try. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have uh, built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Zeus, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. 
Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. As they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. And they were defeated, for the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, uh, they looked down, uh, uh, they looked toward the multitude, uh, and there were the dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the place was called the valley of Baraka until this day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray for revelation and I pray, God, that you will embed this word in the hearts and in the minds of your people. We will be a people that gather together to glorify you every time we assemble. And we will lift our voices to you and we will worship you and we will establish your kingdom every time we gather. You have dominion in this place. Cast down the enemy, exalt your name. I pray if there's anyone here that's not saved, you will salvage them. You will deliver the legal prey. You will bring uh, your grace to bear in their lives. I pray all of this uh, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, uh, amen. Now, in our story, uh, there's a great army that's come up to battle against Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. Sometimes when you read stories like this, you may not connect the text to your own life. But there are some overarching principles that you have to bear in mind, especially whenever you read the Old Testament. You, one thing that stands out, and that is that the people of God are warriors. They are constantly engaged in battle. And that carries into the New Testament the language of militancy, the language of warfare, is always there in the writings of Paul. It was there in some of the parables of Christ uh, it is a reality in the kingdom. The kingdom of God suffers violence. The violent take it by force is a declaration of the nature of the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is a place of violent warfare. And whether you recognize that or not, we are involved in that warfare every day of our lives. There is warfare against your soul. 
There is warfare against your family. There's warfare against your children. There's warfare against your health. There's warfare against your finances. There's warfare against your marriage. And the devil is unrelenting. And his minions are constantly at work. You know people who have been carried off as legal prey. That's talking about spoils of war. That's talking about people who are captive. The Bible says that those who sin are slaves. Slaves of sin. They have been captured. They have been taken away. And they have no choice but to serve in wickedness. Our city, our nations are all battlegrounds. And the problem is that we don't recognize that every day of our lives. You know, if you lived in a war-torn nation, you would live differently than you live now. When you are surrounded by battle and conflict, you don't step out the front door in your jammies in the morning and stretch and pick up the paper and listen to the birds for a little while and just enjoy the sunlight. That's not how you step outside in a war zone. Before you ever go out the tent flap, you your helmet's on, uh, your armor's on, your gun's loaded, and you're ready. You're aware. You're constantly vigilant because your life depends on it. And just because you don't hear the bombs exploding and you don't hear the bullets whizzing by your head doesn't mean that you don't live in a battlefield. Doesn't mean that you are very much at risk. See, the delusion of the Western world is we're not in any real trouble. Everything's okay. We've got our education. We've got our medical. We've got our uh, decent housing. We've got cars. We live in comfort. Uh, and we have this false sense of security. And that's why many, many Christians are either taken out of the battle or taken out of the kingdom very early on because they don't recognize the warfare that are involved in. We are at ease in Zion, so to speak, and we miss it. And then we start dealing with spiritual verities with a slack hand. We start taking things for granted. We pray, but we lose the aggression in prayer. We worship, but we lose the militancy. Church is an option, right? If you're in an army, it's not an option to assemble on the battlefield. You don't choose what day you go to war. You don't choose what day you report for duty. But you see, we don't think in militant terms. We have a very westernized mindset about spiritual things. But then I get the phone calls. And somebody's marriage is in trouble. Some kid has gone off the rails. Somebody is sick in their body. They've just been diagnosed with some terrible disease. And every one of those phone calls shares the same kind of shock and surprise. There's always this element. How could this happen? Why is this happening? Where did this come from? You're at war. What did you expect? Did you expect row, row, row your boat gently down the stream? Everything's fine. Everything's ducky. We live in Candyland. That isn't the world we live in. 
And you may not believe me, but stick around for a while. My scars have scars. I know about warfare, and I'm telling you that it shouldn't surprise you. And everything that I'm saying isn't paranoia. It's not hyperbole. It's Bible. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He looks at Christians and he sees lunch. I was praying one day. This is, this is a weird little story. It has nothing to do with nothing, except lions. I'm praying in my office and the phone rings. I pick up the phone and this voice says, a lion is loose in Las Vegas. Whoa! I hung up. What kind of madness is that? I already know that. You don't have to call me, God. I already know. I'm praying. Did you hear me praying? Phone rings again about 20 minutes later. A lion is loose in Las Vegas. Apparently, it's some kind of mechanized warning system because every now and then, a mountain lion will wander down out of the mountains that surround Las Vegas, and the lion is loose in Las Vegas. Well, let me tell you something. The lion is always loose in Las Vegas. And the lion is loose in Hurstville, and Parramatta, and Australia. You guys got bad animals down here. <laughs> but the worst animal you got is a lion. And he's looking at you and he's thinking, I'm going to find a way to destroy a life. Because that's what he's after. To steal, kill, and to destroy. And you've got to recognize this. Don't, don't wander around with blinders on. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This isn't imaginary. The devil is a symbol. He is a real malevolent being who wants to destroy your life. Paul speaks in Corinthians of the weapons of our warfare, not being carnal but mighty through God, making it very clear that we are in warfare. Peter writes, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Because if you understand the playing field, if you understand the reality of the spiritual arena, then you would understand that fiery trials are part of war. And when you got saved, you stepped into warfare. And armed with that knowledge, you would think it would affect the way you behave the way you live, where you go. There are some places you just shouldn't go. The things you do. You say, well, I'm okay. I'm in Christ. Yeah, I know you're in Christ, but you are on a battlefield. And you have to be aware of that. And it's a good thing to think in militant terms, especially when you think about the church. The church is the assembly, the gathering. It is the troops coming together to do battle. The church of Jesus Christ is fighting 
for dominion. There's a great parallel to this in 1 Chronicles 12. It talks about when they were coming to make David king in Hebron. If you are acquainted with the history and the story, you know there was, as there always was, whenever there was a, a, a change of king, a change of ruler, there was always contest. There was always subterfuge. There was always uh, uh, people trying to usurp and people trying to take over. And it was always a very precarious time. And so the Bible says this in 1 Chronicles 12, 38, all these men of war, men of war, that could keep rank, came with a perfect heart to Hebron to make David king over all Israel. So these men knew, and they came armed and they came ready because they were declaring David was going to be the king of Israel. Every time we gather, we declare to a hostile world, Christ is king. Jesus Christ is our king, and we serve him and him alone. Well, there are a lot of people and spiritual beings that will contest that. And so it says that these were men of war, men who could keep rank, men who would be where they needed to be, shoulder to shoulder, going to battle. They weren't going to a rock concert. Amen. They weren't going to Hillsong, dare I say it. They weren't going to be entertained. They had their sword and their shield and their spear, and that's what church is. Church is some other things. There are several analogies and metaphors that you'll find in Scripture, but church is the church triumphant. It is the militant army of God. Paul uses militant language, I charge you. He uses military terminology. He speaks of us as soldiers. And so that's what we are, beloved. And we are gathered together. We are circling the wagons and we come, amongst other things, to do battle. Amen. Oh, I just came to hear you preach. Well, there's your problem, Vern. He didn't just come to hear me preach. You came to do battle. And let me explain it to you. Let me give you the kingdom strategy for coming to do battle because there are some very clear spiritual parallels and this story is a perfect analogy for the way we conduct our services in our fellowship. The first thing that happens is upon realizing that the enemy is coming and there's a battle to be joined, the first thing they do is they gather and they pray. That's what we do. Before we ever do anything else, we gather and we pray. And we cry out to God because we know, God, we're no match. We can't do this without you. Joseph, I don't even know what to do. That's where I live. I live in Jehoshaphat's position. God, I don't even know what to do. This marriage is blowing up. This pioneer is struggling. This situation, the finances are completely off rails. God, I don't even know what to do. That's why I pray a lot. Because I don't know what to do, but God does. And he's called us 
to pray. You have to understand that even in the material realm, this is a material battle that's about to be joined. There are actual physical weapons about to be engaged, but they don't run onto the, uh, the training field and start dueling and sharpening their swords. The first thing they do is pray because they're dealing with a physical problem in the spiritual arena. And that's the reality of our lives. We live in the material world, but we've got to engage the battle in the spiritual. And so they gather and they pray, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude. And the Bible says that they gathered with their little ones, their wives, their children. Amen. I understand, little tiny Bambino, you know, got to get him in the nursery, wants to nurse. But there comes a point where you really ought to grab your child by the ear and bring them into prayer with you. And so sit there. Here, here's a coloring book. Behave yourself. Don't run around or I'll kill you. You'll be the first casualty of this war. But a lot of people don't find any compelling reason to go to prayer before service. But prayer before service is the service. Amen. Service didn't start tonight at 7.30. It started at 6.30. And every night and every day when we gather, prayer starts service. That's the beginning. That's where the battle is joined. If you're not in prayer, you're not fighting. I'm sorry if I'm bothering you. I'm not done yet either. I'm going to bother you a little more before I'm through. But you cannot let your prayer become some perfunctory ritual performance. You have to go to prayer knowing I'm about to enter into battle. I got my gun. I've got it sighted in. And I'm going to target some things. And I'm going to shoot at some things. And I'm going to kill some things. Amen. It's absolutely critical that we gain dominion in the battle, first and foremost in prayer. And Jehoshaphat cites a precedent here. He says, if disaster comes upon a sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple in your presence. This is a recitation of a creed. This is something they have agreed upon upon the building of the temple. Whenever problems come, come to the temple. Come to the temple and pray. Whenever there's a war, come to the temple and pray. Oh, beloved, if Christians understood how critical it was to come to the temple and pray, to join together man, woman, and child and cry out to God, maybe, maybe the revival that we all say we want to see might actually happen. I'll get to that in a minute. Jehoshaphat called the people to come to pray to fast, and they did. And God responds through a prophet. He hears them, and to them, 15, he said, Listen, all you of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Don't be afraid, nor dismayed, because this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Well, that's what we need to hear, right? 
We need that reassurance. And God gives them that reassurance while they're praying. And what do they do? They bow on their faces and they thank him and they worship him. And that just is a little insight into effective prayer. I always season my uh, prayer time with worship and thanks for the promises that he has given me. He has said some things to us. Your pastor at the beginning of the service mentioned uh, before we prayed, you ask believing. He was citing a scriptural promise there. I am thankful for those promises. I am thankful that God says I can pray for resource. I can pray for my family. I can pray anything according to the will of God and I can see it come to pass. And so in, in your prayer, uh, Jesus himself said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start it off with praise. Build your prayer on the praise and the, the gratitude for the promises God has given you. Here God speaks to them, gives them the promise of victory. Yes, God. Thank you, God. So, so something's already churning in them. There's, there's a spirit that has gripped them. That, that's what can happen if you'll come and you'll pray. You'll come into the service and it'll be different. And when you come in, the whole thing will feel different and your experience will be different because you've already started to move into victory. So the next thing that happens is they march into war. And they march into war in a very peculiar way. If you're going to go to war, the front line is going to be your biggest, baddest, nastiest, meanest, brawlingest Samoans in the church. This is your front line right here. Okay? And they all do that thing. I've watched it, you know. <laughs> That's the way you're going to fight, right? That's the way you're going to fight. And you're going to have the guys with the biggest spears. You're going to have the guys with the biggest shields. The guys who weigh the most are going to be on the front line. That's the way you're going to go to battle. God says, no. Put the hippies at the front line. And the Bible says they sang loud and high. They probably got up to octaves they had never hit before. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. What a weird way to go to battle. But I want to tell you something. God knew what he was doing. He set the praise and the songs before anything else. So what do we do? What do our services do? We, we go, we storm heaven. We're in battle. We come out of there and what do we do? We come in here and we praise and we sing. Okay? When you do that, you need to do that in a militant way. You need to let it rip. Amen. You need to put fear into the heart of the enemy. The Bible says demons tremble. They aren't as bad as we think they are. 
And if we would put on our helmets and we would come in with praise and thanksgiving and we would push, we would see victory. Our praise, just like our prayer, shouldn't be a ritual. It shouldn't be something that you are half engaged in. If you were on a battlefield and there were bullets flying, would you be half engaged? Right? Uh, you know, what's going on with the rugby team? That, that wouldn't even be on your mind. It would be a, a battle for survival, a battle to the death. you got to understand that that's what's going on when we gather before the Lord. This is God's way of doing battle, and this is God's way of getting victory. When you read the book of Revelations, you see all of this incredible madness, this warfare. I mean, there are things blowing up everywhere. A third of the earth dying in one fell swoop. All kinds of blood and fire and mayhem and murder and the armies of the east and the armies of everybody gathering against Israel. And it's, it is a book of hellacious warfare. But in between the descriptions of all of this madness, there are constantly chapters of praise and singing. Praise and singing is the soundtrack of the book of Revelations. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 14, 15, 19. It's thunderous praise going on in heaven while thunderous warfare is going on on earth. They're connected. The praise is having a bearing on the victory. Remember Moses? And how they were fighting against the Amalekites and Moses was up on the mountain with his hands raised. And as long as his hands were raised, victory. And whenever his hands went down and the praise stopped, defeat. There is a direct connection. And according to Revelation, the soundtrack of spiritual warfare is praise. Do you know how important a soundtrack is? Think about a movie without a soundtrack. Think about a horror movie without a soundtrack, right? You got a guy walking down a hall. There's doors on every side, and there's a door at the end. He's walking down the hall. But there's no soundtrack, right? He's just walking down the hall. You're thinking, what's wrong with this guy? Ah, but add the soundtrack. And now you're screaming at the movie screen, don't go down there, dude. Don't go down there. You're going to die. There's a bad guy behind that door. You're going to die. Right? The soundtrack is everything. And the soundtrack of our warfare is everything. And I guarantee you what happened that night in El Paso was more than just this weird anomaly. There was a war going on. There was something going on that when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out exactly what happened that night. But there were demons that were jumping out of windows and running for the door because we were establishing the dominion of God. And we saw incredible revival in El Paso. We saw God build a powerful church there. And you and I have to understand that there is a direct connection between the way you praise and the victory you get. When Gideon went down against uh, uh, the armies that had gathered against Israel, 
It says, then th three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers they held in their hands. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Uh, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled. So there it is again, the exact same kind of scenario as what we've just read. A whole different battle, but as soon as they stood up and declared the dominion of God and shouted with a great shout, the enemy turned on itself and wiped itself out. And so we have it in this story. And they began to sing and they began to praise and the Midianites uh, and uh, uh, the, the children of Moab and the children of Ammon turned on the children of Mount Seir, wiped them out and then they turned on each other and at the end of it all, everybody's dead and Israel didn't have to swing a sword. All they had to do was sing. What a great battle. That's the kind of battle I want to be in. I just want to walk into the midst of the enemy and watch them all drop dead. That's a hippie's battle. What a glorious picture. And the Bible says that when it was over, they stood on the mountaintop, they looked down in there, and all they could see is dead bodies, a defeated enemy. And they went down amongst them, and they started stripping the jewels off of them, which is very interesting to me because I don't think your average warrior puts on his best jewelry to go to war. But they had so much jewelry that it took them three days to carry it all off the battlefield. And I got to thinking about that. Uh, what are the jewels of the kingdom? It's the souls of men. Scripture declares it beyond any doubt. Zechariah 9.16, the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown. Bible says in Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day, I will make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Here is God's declaration of his redeemed. They are my jewels. They are my treasure. Go through, do your own study. You'll find that kind of language is often applied to the redeemed, to the people of God. What would that mean for us? Perhaps if we could get dominion, perhaps if we would turn the battle against the enemy in prayer and in praise, perhaps that indeed would be the catalyst of the revival that we all want. Perhaps that would lead us into the treasure of souls. You guys right now, I mean, I'm coming in, and I'm seeing what's going on here. I was telling your pastor today, it's like smelling barbecue. You smell it. You don't know exactly where it is, but man, it smells good. That's what's going on in this church right now. I smell revival. This is revival. I've been around a few revivals. This smells like revival. We've seen this in Las Vegas on a couple of occasions where it just started, it started breaking loose. Man, it smells like revival. And then it kind of, you know, and so I'm not totally sure 
everything that's going on here, but I can tell you this, the saints have definitely got their head around praise. And in Las Vegas, our services are electric in praise because they understand why they're doing it. They're not just coming and hubbubbing the ceiling, right? Toyota, Kawasaki. <laughs> they're speaking in tongues. They're declaring the victory of God. They're claiming their destiny and their promise. You guys are right there. What would happen if you guys just absolutely went to battle every time you came to church? No telling. Revival is born in battle. And prayer and praise are the stuff of war. And we have to make application. The battlefield had previously been a place of terror and fear. They went into this battle convinced they were going to lose. But God spoke to them. God gave them direction. They followed through on that. And the end of the story is that when they were done, they changed the name of the battlefield to the Valley of Baraka, which literally means the Valley of Blessing. God will turn your battles to blessings. God will turn very hard things to his glory. I was talking with a sister before the service who's had a, a, a bit of a rough spell. And she said, I, I would never have expected to be as wonderful as it's been. Battle to blessing. Revelation. Insight. Things happen when God comes down and meets with us. And the Bible says that we enthrone him on our praises. We build a throne for the presence of God. And that's what we need if we're going to win. Amen. I want every head bowed. Every eye closed. God wants to do amazing things. He's a God of battle. The Bible specifically says he is a man of war. It says that about God. God is a man of war. God's not a 